Well, church, we're in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and the passage this morning will be verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. We'll come back to this passage next week, but hear the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord. And not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, in this passage this morning, we're going to first look at the context and then look at the implications. In the previous paragraph, Paul is talking about husbands and wives, children. The husband and wife relationship is grounded in the creation order before sin entered the human race. And now he's turning to a situation which reflects a broken world, slavery. In this context of Colossae, the vast majority of slaves were slaves because they were the spoils of war. The Peloponnesians would conquer the Carthaginians and take the Carthaginians into captivity. The Carthaginians will, would conquer the Berbers and the Berbers would go into captivity. Or the Vandals would sack Rome and, as they did in 410 and many Romans would go into captivity in the northern Germanic tribes. Uh, so it was, it was tied to war, the spoil of war. In, in our own country, in our history, it was tied much more, almost exclusively, to race. So it was different in this place. But slavery, as one commentator says, is a repugnant social contract. It's outside of the will of God. Paul is speaking to a group of people in the context in which they lived. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says this, the word of God, the law is for, he lists several groups, verse 10, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality and slavers or slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound, clear, life-giving doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been Entrusted, So it's repugnant. It's a horrible situation. And quite frankly, there, if you read church history, there are those who use this text uh, to support chattel slavery, which is ridiculous. If they just lifted their eyes, not only to heaven, but just lifted their eyes up the text and read in verse 11, here, here in the church, in, among God's people, there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Jesus Christ destroys any type of barrier. We are one in Christ. And it is with great sorrow that I, I say that. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to do this very quickly and then go to the implications. But in 1857, there was a decision made that Justice John Roberts wrote just a couple of years ago, was the worst decision in the history of the Supreme Court. It was called the Dred Scott case. The Dred Scott case involved a, a 
a slave who was transported from a slaveholding area into the Wisconsin Territory, which ultimately became Minnesota. And he lived there several years, and he was taken back to a slave area, and he sued for his freedom. The course went to the, to the Supreme Court. And in 1857, four years before the war between the states, the Civil War, the Supreme Court voted seven to two, seven to two, that African Americans were not equal with whites. Um, the Chief Justice Roger Taney wrote the majority opinion. He was from Maryland. He was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for 28 years until he died in 1864. And I'm going to read one paragraph from this opinion. The vast majority of people have never read the Dress God opinion. So I'm going to read one paragraph, and, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to have to read it, but I want you to show you what they said. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. This is the paragraph. The black person, people from more than a century before, have been regarded as being of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. No rights which the white man was bound to respect. And that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic. Whenever a profit could be made by it, this opinion was at that time fixed and universal in the civilized portion of the white race, close quote. It's unbelievable. And once again, if they just lifted their eyes to Colossians 3.11. I, I read that, though, and I ask myself, I ask us, to what areas are we blinded in our own day and age here in 2018? This is horrendous. So that's what they said, 72. Uh, the Minority Report was written by another justice, and it was, it's a brilliant statement. But there was a man who was a freed slave named Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass responded to this horrific decision. This is what Frederick Douglass said, and this is really good stuff. We are now told in tones of lofty exaltation that the day is lost, all is lost, and that we might as well give up the struggle. The highest authority has spoken. The voice of the Supreme Court has gone out over the troubled waves of the national conscience, saying, peace, be still. Then he said this. It's a picture of Frederick Douglass. The Supreme Court of the United States is not the only power in the world. It is very great, but the Supreme Court of the Almighty is greater. I don't know who a speechwriter was, but that is a great line. And it really echoes what Peter says in Acts 5, 29, when he says before the governing council, we must obey God and not man. There is a higher authority. We stand under the authority of Scripture. Therefore, I step back and I say this, this horrendous, and, and where's our blind spot? Let me take a brief side road before we go to the implication. I think in our day and age, uh, when I read the popular press and that, that one area where there is a blind spot is in the area of 
the sanctity of, of human life. I, I believe that. It's now couched under reproductive freedom. I've got an article here, or an editorial, from Business Week. It was written in 1999, so it's a little dated, by a professor of economics at Harvard University, University uh, which is the school that you go to if you can't get in the Citadel, something worth It's a great school. This guy is a PhD in economics, and he's talking about a recent study released by two professors, one from the University of Chicago, the other from Stanford. And these, the studies by, by professors uh, of this school talked about the ramifications of abortion. And he's, this is what it says. The idea is that the children who were not born would have been disproportionately likely to grow up in poverty and on welfare with a young and poorly educated single parent. Because these factors are known to breed crime, the children not born would have been prime candidates to be criminals in 15 to 25 years. Hence, the absence of these children contributes to the drop in crime we have seen since 1991. So, so there are other studies that would contradict that, by the way. But, but this, is what he, this is what he says. You know, it's very interesting that maybe the drop in crime is due to the fact that we are uh, aborting some children. And then this professor of economics, Dr. Barrow from Harvard closes his little article with three sentences that chilled my soul. The effect on crime, even if confirmed by further study, would probably not moderate the views of pro-lifers who view abortion as murder. Similarly, the evidence would have little influence on the pro-choice advocates who already view a woman's right to an abortion as a fundamental liberty. But for people with a less extreme view, including me, the policy implications could be important. If abortion rights turn out to be a strong crime fighter, then opinion is likely to move in favor of these rights, close quote. It took my breath away. What he's saying is that I have no issue with people who believe that abortion is the taking of a life. I'll give them that. But if abortion leads to less crime, I'm moving in the area of the pro-abortion crowd. That's, that's unbelievable. So what he's saying is, so is the taking of a life. Get over it. I believe that my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren will look back at my life in part, and they'll say, what did you say about the sanctity of human life? I believe that. That's one blind spot. There are others. But just pray and, and search the Scripture and walk in community and, and, and say, don't let us fall into these traps. So, so th that's the context. Now let me go to the implications. The implications, Paul is really talking to people about how, how to live well in very difficult circumstances. And everyone here will go through difficult circumstances. Everyone here will go through tough times. Some people here are going through an incredibly difficult circumstance right now, whether it's in your, 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 your relationships, your job, your parenting, your marriage, just difficult circumstances. So how to live well in the midst of difficult circumstances. Point one is this. The overview of the scripture is we live in a term that was coined first by a guy named Jehardus Voss and later by George Yeldon Land from Fuller Seminary, where we live in the already but the not yet. If you're a believer, you have union with Christ. If you're a believer by faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, you have the hope of heaven. You are a new creation in Christ. And yet the most committed, wholehearted, going for it person still deals with sin 
the, the flesh, the world, and the devil. We all deal with that. And so we will never be perfect till we see our Savior face to face. So, so there is real and substantial change when you come to know Christ, but it's not complete. And so we deal with the already but not yet. We live between, the classical statement is between D-Day, June 6, 1944, and V-Day in Germany, May 1945, in Japan, August 1945. We live between D-Day and V-Day. After, after D-Day, everyone knew in Europe the war was over. It was over. Now, there was the Battle of the Bulge, the last gasp of the Nazis, but everyone knew that after D-Day and the beachheads in France and the going forward, that it was done. It was over. But you still fought. You live between D-Day and V-Day. See? And so we, we deal with these issues. We, we, we deal with, 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 with sin. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 says this, verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of Christ's control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, so at present, not everything is in subjection to Christ. V-Day in, or D-Day in V-Day. Or 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. He says we're, we're God's children. And what we will really be like one day is not clearly seen, but when Christ comes again, we'll see it all. So we live in the already, but the not yet. Therefore, Romans 8, verse 22 and 23 says this, very important passage. For we know, Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is saying that the created order is growing. And, And as we have tasted the first fruits of the glory of Christ, we groan. We realize that in the fallen world, some things are upside down and some things are inside out. And we realize that the best meal we had this week, and we had, I had some good meals this week, is only one, one millionth as good as a banquet of heaven. And that the most beautiful Charleston mornings, and we've had some beautiful mornings, is, is only a dim reflection of the glory of heaven and the warmest embrace of a friend is only a, 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 a shadow of what we see. And, and so, therefore, brothers and sisters, we groan. I was thinking about, how, how do I get this across? And I was sitting there last night going over this and my study, and I, I looked across the room, and there was a, a stack of, of Wall Street journals that, that I hadn't put in the recycling bin yet. So I said, I'm going to take the top Wall Street journal and I'm going to look at it and think about the groaning process. So I picked up this. This is Wednesday, June the 6th, the Wall Street Journal. And I just went through it for a few pages and circled groaning. The first page, designer Kate Spade dies at 55. Committed suicide. Left a 13-year-old daughter. 
And I knew from a family of suicide history, on both sides of my family, I knew that that 13-year-old daughter would not spend one day the rest of her life without this nagging question, why did she do it? And I groaned. I said, oh God, have mercy. And I kept on, and I could go to any page, but, but I, I went to um, this page six, Nicaraguan political crisis. I didn't know about this, so I read the article. In Nicaragua today, there's a political crisis with Daniel Ortega. He's there once again. Since mid-April, more than 100 people have been killed in confrontations with police during mass protest. And what human rights groups say are paramilitary gangs aligned with Mr. Ortega's government that indiscriminately are killing people. Among them were 15 people killed at a peaceful Mother's Day protest march last month in Managua and 11 by paramilitary groups and police in the predominantly indigenous city of Messiah. This past weekend, including a 15-year-old protester who witnesses say was executed by a policewoman. I just kept on going. I groaned. I said, Nicaragua, Venezuela. What's happened in Venezuela is horrible. I groaned. Or a turn that says Ethiopia and Eritrea have a peace accord after decades of fighting and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people murdered on the border. There's a, there's a very tenuous peace process on the, the, the suffering people of that part of Africa. And there's a picture of a procession with seven coffins in it in the country of Guatemala where last week 70 people died of a volcanic eruption, which is nature groaning. That's nature groaning. I just said, Two other examples, the very last page is about Saudi Arabia. The new, newly minted leader of Saudi Arabia who's opened the door to certain things has clamped down on free speech and dissidents and it says that hundreds, maybe thousands of dissidents have been jailed in Saudi Arabia and thousands are fleeing the country because of the clamp down on people speaking out. In a country of 33 million, there is no concept of freedom of speech or religious opinion. It is outside of the Wahhabist mindset and I groaned. I thank God for our country, and I've grown from millions of people that are enslaved in places like this. And the last example, the editorial on the death of Robert Kennedy. I was in the eighth grade, June of 1968. Got up early in the morning and turned on the TV and heard that in California, the front runner for the Democratic nomination, Robert Kennedy, had been shot in the kitchen of a hotel in Los Angeles. His life was in the balance. The man who shot him was Sirhan Sirhan, a Syrian Christian refugee. And the story goes that a busboy was going by and he dropped to his knees and he held the, the head of Senator Kennedy in his hands. And as his life bled out, Senator Kennedy said, is anyone else hurt? And 20 hours later, he died. His wife was with him. She was pregnant with their 11th child. They had 10 children back in Massachusetts, and the family was in California celebrating a victory, and they thought, who, who, can tell, who can tell the 10 children their father is dead? And I read this, and this was very moving. There was a man named John Glenn who had become friends with Robert Kennedy, and it says this, Ethel Kennedy and Bobby's brother Ted, who was also at the hospital, knew there was only one person who could tell the children. It was John Glenn. Because of 
Of all the well-known public acts of heroism in Glenn's life, his two trips into space, his valor as a Marine combat pilot in two wars, the 12 times, 12 times that his fighter planes were hit by enemy anti-aircraft fire, what he did that Virginia morning, Virginia didn't make it into most of the obituaries when he died in 2016. And Glenn himself not wanting to violate the privacy of the boys and girls born to Robert and Ethel Kennedy chose not to ever elaborate on it. In his memoirs, he simply wrote, quote, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, close quote. You think of all the excuses you can make, think of all the ways to beg off such an assignment, but John Glenn never begged off of anything in his life. One recent evening, I asked Robert Kennedy Jr. why he thought it was Glenn to whom his family would turn at this terrible moment 50 years ago, and he said the answer was uncomplicated. Quote, John Glenn had great courage, both physical and moral, but what many people don't know is what a compassionate and tender man he was. My father had many friends. This was more than that. He considered John Glenn to be his brother. And I read that and I thought about the horror of murder, political abuse. And I grieve. I groan. I thought about 11 children left without a father. And I groan. So, so what I'm saying is, because we live in the already but not yet, we groan. Now, here's my application. I just want this to be a, a, an information dump. I want you to hear this. The living God did not become a man and live a perfect life and die on the cross for your sin so that you could be just okay. I want you to hear me. Just, just okay. He died on the cross. He poured out His Holy Spirit to empower us to be people who walk before Him with dignity and heart. Okay? Jesus didn't die on the cross so that I would not be a lustful man three, months, three weeks out of the month. No, he died on the cross because Ephesians 5 says, verse 3, but that immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you because it's not even fitting to be named among God's people. He died on the cross so I could be a pure man. He didn't die on the cross so that I could have a marriage that just limps by until we die. In our house, I, I do this. I don't know if I've ever was taught this or came up with it on my own. It was a bad idea. But frequently I look at my wife and I'll say, how are we doing one to ten? Ten being good, one being, oh man. And invariably she says, you go first. <laughs> and like a total idiot that I am, I go first. And I'm telling you, 90% of the time? At least 90% of the time. Wives, this is going to be true across the board. It just is. 90% of the time, I grade us higher than she does. I think we're at 8 or 9, and we're really at 6. But anyway, whether we're at 7 or 8 or whatever, we need to sit back and say to each other, how under the lordship of Christ can we go from an 8 to an 8.4? Or from a 6 to a 6.025 or something like that. How can we nudge the needle forward just a little? Jesus didn't die on the cross so that I could limp by in my life. So, so don't, don't, what I'm saying is don't fall back in this and say, well, already but not yet, you know. It's, no, 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 no. Press. Point two is this. We, we rejoice in the all-seeing King and we live as unto Him. 
We live as unto, we rejoice in this all-seeing king, and we live as unto him, Paul says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Verse 23, verse 22. Don't live as people, not as I serve as people, but as, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So this all-seeing king watches over our lives, and we live as unto him. Now, if you, if you pull out your dollar bill sometime, and there's a seal on it. It's uh, one of the seals of the U.S. government developed by the founders, and it's the seen eye, and it, it represents the eye of God. And the little Latin phrase means providence, which stands for God, has been kind to us, the seen eye. See, and it's, it's, you know, it's got glory coming out of it, and, and, and so the seen eye, God watches over us, the all-seeing living Christ. He sees us. He knows us. And, and I, 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 I've been thinking about that recently, and I've, I've gone, you know, um, the, 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 many of the founders were, were deist who believed that God made the heavens and the earth and walked away, or, or many of them were, were bare, bare theists. They, they, got, they believed in God but couldn't define Him. And then there's many of them were true evangelical Trinitarians, Anglicans. Um, George Washington, for example, was for sure. James Madison. But anyway, but, but, but they, but, but, so, so they, had, they had a very limited concept of a sovereign God who is triune and who watches over us. They had no concept, I don't think, of the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only hope in life and death? Answer that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has purchased for me peace with God, and then not a hair can fall from my head without our Heavenly Father's knowledge. And I thought about, you know, so I should rejoice in a great God who watches over me, who made the heavens and the earth. His name is Jesus, and he's my Savior and my King. And I thought about the old hymn. It goes like this. Uh, he leadeth me, O blessed thought. O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Just, just filled with comfort. Whatever I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. Then one stanza goes like this. Uh, so sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom. We'll have deepest gloom. Sometimes in uh, Eden's flower bloom. So sometimes you feel like you're in the Garden of Eden, the flowers are blooming, the birds are singing. There's no noceums. It's good. By waters calm or over troubled seas, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me. He leadeth me. By his own hand, he leadeth me. His faithful follower, I will be, for by his hand, he leadeth me. That is our birthright. The all-seeing Christ leads us and watches over us and guards us. We should be rejoicing. And I thought of some of my favorite verses that reflect that. Psalm 125 says this, verse 1 and 2. Uh, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. Wow. God surrounds us. Or Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God upholds us. Think about that. Isaiah 64, verse 4. 
ear has not heard, nor has it conceived, nor has it the eye of man contemplated any God besides you who acts in behalf of those who wait for him. Wow, God, God acts for us. He delights in us. He loves us. Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Rejoice. So here I need to make a confession about the way I handled Scripture in the past, a passage I totally misunderstood, I think. It's in the book of Hebrews, New Testament. Let me tell you verses. 12 and 13 of chapter 4 says this. I used to teach this when I did youth camps. I would always do this passage because, you know, you just kind of... For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow. Verse 13, nothing. And all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we will give an account. I'd stop and I'd say, God sees you. God knows you. You young man having those thoughts about this blonde over here, God knows that. And he's going to get you. That's not what the passage is saying. Read it in context. Always read it in context. Listen to the next verse. It's an invitation to fellowship is what it is. Verse 14. This is so good. I mean, this is so good. So uh, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession of faith, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we have, yet without sin. Let us therefore. Jesus, eternal God became a man. Wow. No sin. Wow. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Confidence that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Wow. See, it's an invitation. God is saying, I love you. Come into the throne room. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come into the throne room. Come into my presence. Enjoy the, the embrace of Abba Father. Now, I thought many times, one of C.S. Lewis's greatest statements is in his little autobiography called Surprised by Joy. And, and he says this, he, he says, uh, and I thought he may have said this as he was reading this passage, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. His compulsion is my liberation. What a great statement. His compulsion, my liberation. So, and this great Christ watches over us. And this great Christ brings circumstances into our life to get our attention, to cause us to run to Him, to cause us to praise Him. Um, John Newton, I've been reading a lot of John Newton later, he says this. Newton says we need to understand when life is easy and prosperous, we are especially tempted to forget the Lord. 
in our wandering hearts cause many trials and troubles in our life. That the great God who watches over us um, allows difficulties to fall into our life to cause us to go to Him. There's a quote in the worship guide where Newton says, I, I marvel at the tender providence of God to lead us into places that are difficult. Hosea in the Old Testament, verse 13 says, when I fed them, they became satisfied. When they became satisfied, they became prosperous and they forgot me. They forgot me. So I just say to us, brothers and sisters, uh, let us not forget. I, I really believe God allows us to hit walls which drive us to worship. I've known many, many people in my life, many successful people, many very bright people, many people that are well off financially. I've yet to meet a person who didn't need daily grace. Daily grace. So my thought is, for me, that when marriage hits a dip, and it does, when I have issues in my life, or my thought life, or, or other issues, when I murmur against God, and I do. I should get on my knees and say, Lord, thank you for letting me hit a wall because it shows me that I need grace every day. Every day. There's a um, wonderful little book called Pilgrim's Progress by a guy named John Bunyan, who died, I think, he died in 1688. So uh, he was a Baptist preacher who spent 12 years in prison because he wouldn't quit preaching the gospel. And while he was there, he wrote this book called Pilgrim's Progress. And it's a classic. And so it's an allegory. And there's a guy named Pilgrim who's going to heaven. And so in the last part of his journey, he meets up with a fellow traveler called Hopeful. And so Hopeful and Pilgrim are, have just had a dialogue with a man named Atheist. And I'm just going to read part of it to you. Hopeful says, now do I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in Christ. And so they turned away from atheists as he laughed at them and went his own way. And then I saw in my dream that they went until they came into a certain country whose air naturally tended to make you sleepy. It was called the Enchanted Land. Here's a picture of it. So that's Pilgrim and Faith. So they're in the enchanted land, and there's a celestial city across the river that represents heaven. So they're going through the enchanted land, which represents the last few years of your life before you go to heaven. And Bunyan says, these can be difficult years. This country makes you drowsy, and uh, here Hopeful began to be very heavy with sleep. And he said unto Christian, or Pilgrim, I do now begin to grow drowsy that I can scarcely hold up my eyes and let us lay down here and take a nap. Now, I love naps. This isn't against naps, okay? Don't, don't get carried away. And Christian said, by no means, because while we sleep, we may never awake again. And Hopeful says, why, my brother? Sleep is sweet to the laboring man, and we, we may be refreshed if we take a nap. And Christian says, do you not remember that one of the shepherds preachers told us to beware of the enchanted land or enchanted ground. He meant by that that we should be beware of sleeping when we should be awake. Therefore, let us not sleep, but let us be watchful and sober, quoting 1 Thessalonians 5. 
Hopeful says, I acknowledge my fault. And had I been here alone, I, had, I would be sleeping and run the danger of death. I see what the scripture means in Ecclesiastes 4 when it says the two are better than one. And that we have a good return for our labor. In other words, thank you, Pilgrim. You're my two o'clock in the morning Waffle House friend. Christus said, now to prevent drowsiness in this place, let us fall into a good discourse about our salvation. So they talked about their faith, their hope in Christ. Just, this is good stuff. And then Christian says to Hopeful, he says, how is it that you were brought to understand your sins? And this, he says, he mentions eight things that are all redundant. He says, well, many things taught me. First of all, occasionally I would meet a man who's a good man who loved Christ, and that convicted me. Secondly, if, if I ever heard or read the Bible, that convicted me. Thirdly, if I heard or when my head began to hurt, that convicted me because I realized that one day I would die. Fourthly, if I were told that some of my neighbors were sick, that convicted me. Fifthly, if I heard the bell toll for someone in my village that had just died, that convicted me. Sixthly, if I thought about dying myself, that convicted me. Seventh, if I heard that sudden death had happened to others, that stopped me. But especially, number eight, when I thought of myself, then I must quickly come to the judgment seat and answer to God. So I, I just say especially for those of us who are over 45, a little older. Don't coast. Don't coast. Press. Let us make a pledge. And then in our small groups, we will not talk about our digestive systems or how much our backs hurt. Nobody cares anyway. But let's talk about the next generation. Let's talk about the campus outreach ministry in Myrtle Beach. Let's talk about Vacation Bible School happening this week where 750 kids are going to be here to hear about Jesus. 750-ish. Let's talk about Palmetto Christian Academy and students there. Let's talk about our middle school trip to, it's going to happen in two or three weeks, our high school trips to Mexico and inner city Atlanta. Let's, let's talk about young people being captured for the glory of Christ. And let us go forward. Very quickly, thirdly, the passage says we play to an audience of one. We play to an audience of one. Don't live as, as people pleasers, but live as unto the Lord. More about that next week. And fourthly, we, we, we realize and understand that eternity awaits. So clear here. There is an eternity. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Eternity awaits. Just, there's a wonderful little devotional by a guy named Paul David Tripp, and it's, it's, it's not as good as morning evening, but it's really close, morning evening by Spurgeon. But this week he had an article on what he called... Uh, Eternity amnesia, that we just forget about heaven. We forget about the brevity of life. And this is what he says, and it's so worth pondering. It's really good stuff. He said this, in forgetting who you are, forgetting how you were designed to live, should be designed to live, forgetting who God is, and forgetting what is to come, 
you make yourself and those around you crazy. You, you we this next week, but you demand perfection. You demand that people fulfill your needs and they can't do it. You demand and you demand. Instead of saying, this is a glorious gift and the best is yet to be. So don't, don't, don't have eternity amnesia. This week I had the chance to talk to our lower school principal here at Palmetto Christian Academy, a guy named Rick Martin, who's really a, a great guy, very gifted guy, he's doing a wonderful job. And, and we talked about his parenting class he taught, the resources he used, and the books he recommended, and it was just very, very helpful. And um, he said, let me, let me give you a little paradigm. This is in the worship guide. The little paradigm we try to communicate with our kids in any situation. Number one, everyone is special. Number two, do more than is expected. And number three, have a good attitude. I thought, whoa, that's pretty cool. Maybe everything I need to learn in life, I could have learned in kindergarten. You know? So, so um, and I thought, okay, everybody's special because everyone is made in the image of God. And every man, woman, and boy and girl deserves respect and Christian love. Do more than is expected because you're doing it as unto the Lord. Pursue excellence. And thirdly, just have a good attitude. Throughout the book of Colossians, I mean Colossians, three times in three verses, he says, be thankful. Be thankful. Be thankful. And you see it throughout life. I had two things this week. I, you know, you some, go to some places and you get a quick bite to eat and they're helpful and they're kind and they kind of refill that cup. It's my pleasure, yada, yada. It's, it's really good. And you go to other places and they, you say, I like a hamburger. He says, we're out of hamburgers. Well, I like a fish sandwich. We're out of fish sandwiches. And they're, they're, they could care less. They need that paradigm. I went to a place last night and I told my wife, I... I will go here till I die because they're kind and they go out of their way to serve people. See, that should be our attitude, church. People are made in the image of God. They're special. Do more than is expected. Pursue excellence and have a good attitude. As you read this, that just screams to me from the text. Now, we have the privilege of praying for VBS uh, workers. This is VBS Vacation Bible School Week and we're going to have 750 or so people on our campus maxed out the next five days. So if you're a Vacation Bible School worker here or in the worship center, just stand where you are. Steve, come up here, please. Stand where you are. If you're, going, if you're working Vacation Bible School, go ahead, stand, stand. All right, good. Remain standing. Okay. Now... You probably should hold their, your applause till next week to make, if they make it through the week, okay? So um, we want everybody to stand now. We're going to pray for these people. And if you're close to one of these people standing, touch their shoulder or, or grab their hand. I get to pray with Steve. This is Steve Tuck. You know, Steve is our children's pastor. He's been here for 22 years. And this guy... Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this guy is one of my heroes. He just does it. He's a good brother. He's a big, strong guy, and he's worth his weight in gold. He really is. So you've been a blessing to us. So I get to pray for Steve in this week, so let's, let's just thank the Lord for this week and pray for those around us, okay? We're going to close with this 
So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the incredible privilege of representing you to children. And Lord, many of us in this room went to vacation Bible school as children, and we heard stories about Jesus, whether it's Zacchaeus or Moses. We heard these stories, and uh, we think that the Bible says the word planted in us can save us. And in my own life, that word didn't come to fruition until I was 19, but it came to fruition. And we thank you that the word planted in the hearts of these children this week can have the ability to save and nurture them, whether it's this week or next month or next year or in 20 years. So bless these dear workers who are here and there, whether and working in all types of areas. I, I pray you give them the joy of the Lord, that they would love our kids, that you would protect our kids from any harm, that you would make us a church that loves the coming generations. And uh, so bless my brother Steve. Thank you for his leadership. Thank you for his team and the countless hours that have already been put into this week before tomorrow hits. So guide them and guard them, and we will praise you as you work, Lord, and, and, and just thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the privilege of representing Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Thank you.